0: Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us. Uh, another busy day, but we are starting talking about the work that is underway repairing that giant hole on the Lionsgate Bridge. It's uh, some moisture that was able to get in and ultimately uh, what we call delaminated the concrete or created some some voids and ultimately pieces of the concrete that were coming out. So it did impact the actual concrete structure, uh, the concrete bridge deck as well as now we're taking a look at some of the rebar underneath. So it's a little bit different than a traditional pothole you would see on a Nashville highway and a little bit of a different repair strategy that we need to work forward with. That was Janelle State with the ministry in charge, explaining what they're dealing with on that bridge. Joining us now to talk more about this is Mike Little, the mayor of the District of North Vancouver. Mayor Little, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Uh, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, how are things going as far as delays and uh, what's been happening because of this pothole and the work that's being done to fix it?
1: Yeah, we're in for a few more days of uh, uh, significant um, uh, obstructions at night time. So I know that last night some of the lineups were back into Lynn Valley for at about 10:30 at night. Uh, but this is to get as much of the work done in an off-peak period as we can so that things uh, will roll smoothly during the day. But uh, again, it's, it's just indicative of things to come on an aging piece of infrastructure. This bridge is now 62 years old, and uh, it's going to be harder and harder to uh, keep it fully functional.
0: Does it point to as well, I know there has been a lot of talk about a third crossing between the North Shore and getting to and from the North Shore. Does this kind of put a a spotlight on that or highlight that need?
1: Uh, Definitely long-term planning for the uh, eventual replacement of the bridge is uh, definitely a topic of discussion that we're we're having uh, locally. Uh, I, I think that in the At nearer term, uh, we have been working with the um, uh, Mayor's Council for TransLink to get uh, support from the regional mayors uh, to uh, add a rapid transit to the North Shore. And so uh, while my general view is we need both uh, infrastructure replacement to the existing bridge and we need rapid transit to the North Shore, I think uh, it looks like we're getting a consensus around uh, rapid transit improvements to the North Shore at this point.
0: Does it show as well that as much as we like to talk about transit and more people using transit and finding other ways to get around and to access the North Shore, does it show as well our reliance on this infrastructure and the fact that I think the, the estimate is about 135,000 vehicles that cross the Ironworkers Bridge every day? Does it show that we, we do still really rely on on this Uh, this type of infrastructure for getting around and when one thing goes wrong there's one pothole like this it causes big headaches.
1: Uh, Yes definitely and on the North Shore I mean we've got about uh, almost 100,000 people on the North Shore now Uh, plus we have other regional um, uh, impacts affecting us like the expansion of the sea to sky and Uh, people coming through the ferry terminals, and and really also a a large driver is the number of people who are coming to the North Shore for work. So you see a peak out coming onto the North Shore in the morning and leaving the North Shore in the afternoon. And so we are a major regional employer on the North Shore, but we are really being held back by the infrastructure that we have.
0: And is is the work being done, do you think, or are you satisfied with kind of the, the scope of the work and the time that it's taking to fix this?
1: Uh, I think that everybody was surprised by how complex the fix would have to be. I mean, they have to build scaffolding underneath the bridge and approach it from both sides. Um, and so it is not just a simple uh, pothole fix, uh, as someone suggested. And so uh, I think we've been surprised by that. I, I think we, we definitely saw that we needed to improve the communication uh, last week when uh, some people faced at, uh, four hours in delay um, on the day that it first opened up. Um, but the other aspect is about being proactive and vigilant, which is a uh, number of truckers have pointed out that that pothole had been developing for days. And so we need to make sure that the crews are monitoring the status of all of our bridges uh, uh, on a, on a daily basis in these, um, uh, during times of free thaw, Otherwise, uh, we're going to get caught like this again and again.
0: Because it wasn't that long ago, was it, that there was... I, I don't think it was to this extent, but I do remember there was a metal plate on the Lionsgate Bridge and uh, the bump that even, even though it was a, a plate covering something, I remember the traffic backups because... And not that the lanes were closed or anything, it was just people slowing down to get over that metal plate and worried about, I guess, tire damage or worried about hitting it too fast. And that too caused a lot of traffic congestion.
1: And it wasn't just perceived tire damage. There was actually tire damage, to, um, um, when, when through particularly when the plate was out of position. Um, and so, yes, it seems to be happening with more frequency. And I guess that's to be expected as you're nearing the end of life for um, a major piece of infrastructure or it's due for a major redecking.
0: There were some photos going around of, of this one that we're currently dealing with on the iron Workers bridge that showed, showed a bolt that looked to be sticking out quite a bit from the metal plate. Have you heard of tire damage or any of those issues because of this, this pothole and the repair?
1: I've seen cars pulled over to the side of the road on the south side of the bridge. Um, and I, I don't know whether it's specifically tied to that, but I do commute through that region as well sometimes and and so i've definitely seen uh vehicles in the last week with some pop uh, tires that uh, those bolts uh are really quite significant if you take a close look at them they're um, i guess that's the only way you can do it is from the from the top side is to have fairly significant bolts on the top side but it's uh uh, it also makes quite a clang when you drive over it um, making some drivers nervous i guess
0: yeah, which which uh, that's understandable, or you could see how that would also cause the backups. And, and I know you touched on this, but do you think this will bring more attention to it, or, or how do you kind of steer that conversation in, like you said, rapid transit, looking at this age, aging infrastructure and making sure these crossings are a priority?
1: Well, we obviously have to continue to tell the story to the region. Um, it is a regional uh, traffic problem, um, and as you said at the top end there, um, 135,000 daily trips. I think you're at about 60,000 daily trips on the Patella Bridge and 80,000 daily trips on the on the air in the um, George Massey Tunnel. So this is an even more major piece of regional infrastructure than those. But now that we have concrete steps taking place on both the patella bridge and the george massey tunnel we really need uh, everybody to to remember that the north shore is next and that the iron workers memorial bridge is not meeting our needs now and it's going to be harder and harder for it to continue to uh, be maximized even over the next uh, few years so we we need a solution
0: and, and just going back to something you mentioned there, that there have been reports or truckers saying this pothole was forming over a number of days. Who does that fall to then as far as who maybe should have been paying better attention or could have been alerted and maybe got ahead of this so we're not, we wouldn't now be looking at several nights of lane closures and scaffolding and this large scale repair?
1: I, I just to, I need to get a clear message from the MOTI about what they knew ahead of it opening up because it, what I've heard is that uh, there um, uh, sometimes these things are identified and they they plan the maintenance uh, when they wait for a weather window window potentially and then it 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 sometimes opens up in the meantime forcing their hand to do main uh, do the maintenance work at an earlier stage that might have been the case in in this one. Um, uh, So, but I I think probably the thing to learn from that is to make sure that if uh, particularly our trucking community, because they have a really, um, um, from their vantage, uh, sitting up high, they can see these things better than lots of the other uh, drivers on the road, just communicating back, maybe having a central place that they can communicate back um, concerns about um, potholes in the space uh, to make sure that it's being uh, caught up in the regular maintenance um, by the MOTI staff.
0: And I know, are there any thoughts that this is, was this caused perhaps by the recent snowfall and the sto, and, uh, the snowstorm with all of the the whatever was done to the pavement to, to try and deal with ice? Or do we know if that was a factor?
1: Uh, I'm sure that was a factor, but it was, but it's also simply, we, we haven't had a redecking project on this bridge for, I, I think it's 25 years. Um, and so, uh, it's it's getting to the point now where it's going to need a more serious overhaul in order to be able to extend the life of the um, superstructure of the bridge.
0: All right. Well, Mayor Little, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us this update on the bridge. Appreciate your time today.
1: You bet. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for being with us on this I was just about to say Wednesday afternoon it's Thursday on this Thursday afternoon and coming up a bit later on in the program we're going to be talking about TransLink and what they are doing with a whole bunch of bikes that have been left in some of their locked facilities. If you have a bike that for whatever reason you've left it there you might want to pick it up sooner rather than later but we'll have more details on that coming up a little later on in the program. We're going to talk now about about healthcare workers, specifically at long-term care facilities, and some changes that are now in place. And Terry Lake joins us, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Jill, and Happy New Year to you and your listeners.
0: Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, Wanted to talk to you and get a bit of an update as far as how things are going in long-term care facilities. Uh, Let's start with the single-site work order, which has been rescinded. How big of an impact or how big of a deal is that?
2: Well, it certainly has been an impact over the last two years. It was put in place um, to prevent the spread of the virus from... Uh, you know a worker in one home that is also working in another home uh, which made a lot of sense before we had the vaccine uh, that protected those in care so well it became more of an issue around the inability to fill positions and and to have backup uh, casual staff when needed uh, so we you know had urged the government to um, to rescind the single site order and what they did is more is kind of a phased approach increasing the the sort of areas that uh, you could cluster workers so within a health authority Uh, but now this single site order has been lifted completely uh, as of January 1st which means that you can work in more than one care home uh, at a time which will in many ways alleviate some of the staffing pressures we're feeling uh, at our uh, homes around the province.
0: Was part of the goal of that, though, wasn't it, to make it so people could work a full-time job in one facility rather than maybe more of a piecemeal trying to get full-time hours by working in different facilities?
2: well you know the situation we've been in for the last number of years is that there's there's more hours than there are people to fill them so people certainly were able to get as many hours uh, as they wanted so it really was about limiting Uh, the potential spread of the virus from one home to another which again made a lot of sense when we didn't know how this virus was acting and we didn't have the vaccine in place but um, you know we are facing a a crunch in uh, human resources as many uh, sectors of our economy are and so uh, having access to people who want to work more than full-time you know they, they they want to work in one home for let's say thirty hours a week and in another home for another twenty hours a week uh, that uh, that is still there and and now we're able to to utilize people who want to work more than full time
0: okay, so it's not so much good, but that's where I was uh, a bit confused and that it's not that somebody would would choose to do that to make up the forty hours. This is more for if people want to work beyond that
2: yes and 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 tied to that and to the government's credit was was the wage leveling, which basically said that. You know, people would make uh, sort of the, the minimum level that we see in the, in the Health Employers Association of BC contracts. So, those people that were getting paid below that mark were leveled up to that mark. Uh, and that was tied to the single site order. So, now we're, the government is busy untangling those two things to keep wage leveling going so people can earn uh, a decent living uh, while still having the flexibility to work in more than one location.
0: And so, so that's changed as far as workers and then the, the single site work order rescinded. How are things going then? You're talking as well about shortages. How, how, um, how concerning is it at this point that there are shortages when it comes to staffing levels?
2: Well, it's always a concern. I would say that, you know, at, at some points in the year, we were at kind of a red alert level. Uh, we're more in a sort of orange uh, alert level at this point because things are a little bit better in terms of people coming back from uh, from being ill. And the vaccine has made such a difference that people aren't getting as sick as they were in the initial parts of the pandemic. Um, the, the increased size of the cluster or uh, uh, ability to, to work in more than one home within a health authority helped a little bit. So it's certainly not uh, at its worst point uh, that we've seen over the last two years, Jill, but it's still quite an acute problem, particularly in some areas. Uh, uh, nursing physicians, for instance, uh, still are uh, difficult to fill, particularly the overnight shifts. And so, uh, you know, we're hoping that the Increased numbers of uh, uh, nurses and healthcare aides being trained will help, and also, of course, the work that both the college and the ministry are doing around uh, international-educated health professionals will also start to, uh, to to provide some relief.
0: And what are the rules currently in place then, as far as uh, vaccination requirements for both the, for staff and, and residents of long-term care?
2: Well, residents don't have a requirement, but uh, having said that, I would say 99% of residents have availed themselves of all the vaccines, including the boosters with the uh, the new variants involved. Um, The people who work in long-term care must have at least the first two set of vaccines. They're not required to have boosters, although we know many, many of them have. Uh, But again, we're just not seeing that level of sickness Due to COVID um, that we did see in, in previous years, but of course, or in, the, in the initial wave, I should say, but of course, going into respiratory season, we see other viruses increasing like RSV and, and flu virus, which is uh, affecting people's ability to, to stay well and to, to go to work.
0: Do you think it would have an impact then if that rule was, was relaxed as far as allowing somebody maybe who only had one dose or hadn't been vaccinated against COVID-19 to allow somebody in that position to come back to work?
2: We don't think so. Uh, you know, we, we take it on principle and certainly, uh, you know, all of our members uh, agree with the the principle of, of mandatory vaccination for those who work in healthcare uh, against those viruses that are the most Um, that put our residents at the most risk. So while it may mean that a few people come back into the sector that aren't vaccinated, uh, the risk of doing that and the message it sends uh, our members don't feel is appropriate.
0: Sure. Uh, Is there a mandatory vaccine though or a, a mandatory requirement for flu vaccine?
2: There isn't at the moment um, many people who work in health care of course avail themselves of the opportunity to get vaccinated and those working in long-term care homes uh, are masked when they're working uh, so there is that level of protection uh, this has been a subject of controversy of course uh, the former uh, minister, which was me, uh, was very supportive of a, of a mandatory flu vaccine uh, that uh, since has been relaxed by uh, subsequent governments. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I personally and I think most of our members would support uh, a mandatory flu vaccination program as well.
0: Right. Are there measures then? And I know this was also a very controversial and even trying to make a rule. So if somebody wasn't vaccinated against flu, that they would be masked up when working. Is that something that happens or is, is there any rule like that in place?
2: Yeah, I mean, regardless of, of their vaccination status, with, uh, obviously they have to have COVID, but, but regardless of any other vaccines, uh, workers in long-term care still need to be masked. They're they're wearing surgical masks unless, of course, uh, their point-of-care um, assessment shows that someone may be at risk of passing on a virus, in which case they would move to a, a higher-level N95 mask, which, of course, has to be fitted properly with, you know, appropriate uh, procedures and training, um, so that that is very much uh, still in place in, in care homes.
0: And what are the rules then, as far as visitors or visitation and that kind of thing? Well,
2: the visitation uh, guidelines, uh, the the latest version, have just come out, and uh, not much change there. They're allowing uh, you know to have uh, more gatherings, uh, although. Uh, you know, children under 12, like choirs of kids, uh, still are not able to come into into care homes. Uh, and you're allowed to uh, remove your mask when you're in a private room with your loved one that you're visiting or in a separate area of the home, you know, if, they, if there are no private rooms available. Um, but uh, still the the vaccine mandate is there uh for visitors with the exception of what are known as essential visits so these are visits that are deemed essential for end-of-life care for instance um, it may be for uh, specific assistance with uh, with feeding or with uh with looking after uh, the uh, resident uh, but um, that is the only difference that we're seeing in the new in the new guidelines
0: and do you think that we've come to this point having gone through uh, the, the beginning of the pandemic like you said before and getting people vaccinated and, and learning from that have we come through to a better place as far as lessons that uh, we've learned or, or where do you think there needs to be the focus now or where are there is there still room for improvement so when we're talking about long term care.
2: Lots of room for improvement, Jill, for sure. But I think we have learned some valuable lessons. Uh, Number one, we've learned how important family uh, is to residents in care and the social isolation that people felt over two years uh, of visitor restrictions was enormous. And so, you know, the, the new guidelines certainly speak to that. Also, the new requirement to encourage the formation of family Uh, and resident councils to hear the voice of families is important so i think that's uh, certainly an improvement and a good focus uh, for operators and health authorities in terms of long-term care we also recognize the importance of ventilation and how important it is to make sure we've got good air quality and so the federal government invested a lot of money into capital improvements around air conditioning and uh, ventilation. We need more of that uh, going forward. And quite frankly, we just need to be building more uh, modern uh, uh, care homes because as as much as we like to think we can keep people at home as long as possible, at some point, many people do need uh, long-term care, 24-hour care. And that means we've got to be building at a much faster rate than is currently planned.
0: All right. Terry Lake, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Joe.
0: As mentioned just before the news, Ukraine is spurning an announcement by Russian President Vladimir Putin. This announcement of a 36-hour ceasefire to mark Orthodox Christmas. And Ukrainian officials saying there would be no truce until Russia withdraws its invading forces from occupied land. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Joining us to do that is Mikhailo Ozorovich, pastor at the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in New Westminster. Thank you so much for coming back on the program with us today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Jill.
0: What are your thoughts on this call for a ceasefire? Many are calling it propaganda, but this call and the response from Ukraine as well.
3: Oh, I think it's uh, uh, when I I think of it as imagine somebody broke into your house and was, uh, you know, stealing, robbing, uh, hurting your family, you, and then said, wait a second, I have kind of important, you know, celebration here. So just wait a second, let's hang on. And, and like, it's a joke. <laughs> um, it uh, It's a very poor political attempt to convince the West that there is some goodwill behind any words, uh, hiding, hiding to his own people, hiding the defeats and, and the losses of Russian army uh, in Western Ukraine. Um, it's, uh, cover this, you know, tr- attempt to hide behind Christmas and Orthodoxy and birth of, of Christ and savior and its celebration, as if that has anything, uh, to do with being somebody who invaded another country and killed thousands and a hundred thousands people and hurt millions. Um, so, uh, hypocrisy, um, that's what comes to my heart to, the, the least that I can start describing it.
0: Uh, are you hearing from people, or what are you hearing from people, uh, either friends or family members, uh, that are continuing and are still in Ukraine?
3: I, I think we all stand together um, in this fight and defiance against Russian invasion, where we will not stop until every square inch of uh, our country's territory is freed from Russian invasion. Uh, and from the invader, and 36-hour ceasefire doesn't help us to achieve that, so why bother? Mm
0: -hmm. And the the kind of that we're so far in now or this many months into this invasion and this aggression from Russia, how are people dealing with that and and mentally able to deal with that, people who are still there?
3: Well, the, the, the beauty of a nation is that um there are times when you know i can personally be kind of saddened down and, and 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 destroyed in my own way right and and saddened uh maybe even depressed by the things that are happening but there's millions of others who are in good spirits and who are willing to fight and so this is where the whole morale of the whole country and the nation when you take ukrainians across the world has been able to survive so even when there are moments when somebody could feel like, oh, there's, you know, a portion of political power or maybe soldiers or maybe somebody are, are not doing as well. But there's a whole bunch of other people who come in and kind of, you know, go into the breach uh, to stand alongside other uh, Ukrainians and, and fight and, and push back. Uh, and so that inspires me to, uh, you know, when I when I feel down, rely on others who feel up and then to see when somebody else around me is down in this fight for freedom to um, rise them up.
0: And you talked about the West and response from the West, and I know we've we've talked to you about this when you've been on the show before. What are your thoughts on how the West is continuing to respond or what needs to happen from the rest of the world?
3: I hope that uh, the West will not buy into this ceasefire and kind of start convincing, you know, each other and and Ukrainian uh, and Ukraine saying that yes, ceasefire, it's a good thing, you know, take this little win, uh relax for 36 hours and pray that maybe, you know, something good will come out of it. Uh because that's propaganda. That's uh that's the bait that Putin and his regime kind of put out there for to see how the world will uh, react and it would be a shame to take that bait and say, Oh, yeah, yeah, the ceasefire that's exactly what we want, and let's work with that. We will not work, and the West should not work with anything less than full, uh, uh, full, total uh, taking away the Russian forces from every inch of Ukrainian territory because now every inch, every square inch has been fought and has been covered and uh, kind of saved and redeemed by by blood of those soldiers who gave their lives and many uh, civilians and innocents.
0: And what do you think is going to happen as far and I know nobody can predict exactly what what is going to happen. But I mean, I've I've talked to people who have family in Russia and they've left uh, saying that they've left Russia. They are not going back until Putin is gone. uh, No matter knowing that that could take some time. Nobody really knows how that will play out. But what are your thoughts on on how this is going to continue and and, and what people will be facing?
3: Uh... My uh, very f- first thought that came to my mind from the start of the war is uh, to keep praying, me as as a priest, for conversion of of Russian people. I I still put a lot of hope, not as much as onto Ukrainian people and their courage and their strength, uh, but I I do put a lot of hope onto the people in Russia that they they get enough courage they get enough uh soberness they get enough of uh truth uh in their minds and some goodness into their hearts and rebel and and start a revolution and fight against the tyranny because uh, what we see on display in ukraine happening in in russia itself it's just covered up more and it's not visible to the world um so that's that's still is my prayer have, uh, because we have, we have Russian volunteers here who, exactly what you described, have left Russia and, and say, how can we help from here uh, to defeat our own country kind of thing. So uh, I do hope that millions will, will rise in, in Russia to overthrow the current government and actually you know, reform and repent and change their ways of life.
0: And when you talk about people here as well and helping and reaching out to to do what they can, what advice do you give or or how do you respond when people do continue to ask what can people do here?
3: Um, It's the same ongoing advice for me. Uh, Whatever your talent is, uh, use it towards uh, victory of uh, good over evil, of Ukraine over Russia, uh if uh, if you're a journalist continue you know sharing the stories and bringing it to light uh if you are um you know a person who can financially support uh do that find good charity who support that if you are uh, have whatever whatever you are use your superpower your super gift that god gave you uh to fight this this evil
0: all right so well thank you again so much uh Mikhailo, for coming on the show for talking about this I appreciate your time
3: Have a blessed day.